Who, who said that out loud? I did. <laughs> ben, ben said it out loud. I don't know what to say. Ben, you pray for us. Y'all pray with Ben. Don't hurt the ears of your neighbor, but try to catch the ear of God. Father, we said tonight as we meet with you, Father, would you allow our hearts to get right as your word is about to come forth. Father, would you stir your saints up in this place, Lord God. Father, we're asking in the very same way as we've been preaching about discipleship. Father, may we be discipled in this very moment, Lord God. Father, would you open up our ears and block our ears, Holy One. Father, let your words enter our ears and make its way to our hearts. And Father, let it show up by demonstration of action. So Father, we pray for your son. Father, we say from the very tip of his head to the sole of his feet. Father, would your mighty right arm be upon him. Father, may every word that he speaks come from your very throne room. Father, may your words cut us. May your word encourage and rebuke and train us up in righteousness. So Father, we say tonight, have your way, Lord God. We say all of this in the name that is above every other name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, tonight starts our series in the book of Judges, and uh, Judges is a pretty extraordinary book. Uh, as we go tonight, there's going to be a mixture of seriousness and humor. That's just, uh, that's how my life looks normally, but the book of Judges is one that you have to take with a mixture of seriousness and humor. We're going to get into this more as we go, but I believe it's placement within the Tanakh is very important. I think it will help you understand how you are personally supposed to relate to some of the craziest stories in all of the Bible. Yeah. I mean, if there's ever been a book with weirdness in it, Judges is that. So, in my notes, I have to welcome you to tell you that we're going to look at the placement of the book of Judges within the Tanakh, and then we're going to look at it within history, and finally, we're going to place ourselves within the book in order to make practical application. Uh, Matthew's going to keep working our remote tonight so that I don't have to draw on a board. Um, and like all of our other books here lately, we are going to record these and also provide notes afterwards. So if you miss a note of some kind, uh, it's our hope that we will catch it. A lot of things we do in this ministry are extemporaneous, so um, we're working to find ways to provide you with written materials, okay? Uh, as always, you know how we start a book. How do we start a book? Jennifer reads. Jennifer's going to read. So, Guinevere, uh, Judges 1-1. One, one. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us? against the Canaanites. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezet and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanite and Perizzites. Adonai Bezet fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Mm. 
Then Adonai yeah. Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Hmm. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set fire, <coughs> set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to hmm. fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kirath Arba, and defeated Sheshiah, Ahiman, and Ptolemy. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kirath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter to Aska in marriage to the man who attacked and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aska to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me the land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Canaanite, went up from the city of Palm with the men of Judah to live among the people in the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arid. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites to their brothers and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Hamor. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the son of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. Then he went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is, which is the name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ibleam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron, or Nahalon, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Accor, or Sidon, or Ahalab, or Asgazib, or Helba, or Aspek, or Rehoabah. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. The Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. 
And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, now allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined to also hold out Mount Perez, Ahijalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. There are so many things that may be going through your mind at the moment. And um, our order of study took us from the book of Joshua to the book of Ruth to the book of Judges. So it's out of order from the chronology of our Bible, but it's in order in chronology of time. Mm -hmm. Because the book of Ruth is taking place within the book of Joshua. There, I'm sorry, of Judges. The book of Judges. It is, um, it's enlightening them as we look at its place in the Tanakh and its place in history before we take our place in it. Now, Many of you have been around long enough to know that the book of Judges is a book of prophecy. But we need to examine what that means, how, and why. And suddenly, some of the stranger things in uh, the book of Judges start to take shape in a way that you can understand for your practical life. Such as when you see Jephthah, what is the moral to that whole story? You know, I mean, there, there are so many things in the book of Judges that... You're like, who's right and who's wrong? And the answer is neither, right? And that's a very complicated thing. Well, the Hebrews put it in a place in their Bible, I believe, as directed by God, that, that changes the function from deciding simply who was right and wrong. And uh, I want to show you that. So as you uh, check out the screen, obviously the Hebrew Bible is divided into the law the prophets and the writings. Wow, the computer just died. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, y'all see that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, how about that? <laughs> and I have to wait for it to complete, apparently. Wow. Yeah, thank you. I really want y'all to be able to see this, though. Are y'all good with a, a, a five-minute break? Because yeah. there's visual aids that are going to help you. I don't need it to teach as much as I think you need to see it. So, um, no. You can cast it if you want. Okay. Um, actually, we're restarting there. Why don't we do this? Since Satan has already interrupted our Bible study, why don't we go ahead and pray and step on it? Not pray to kill time. Pray to step on it. You know, who likes to step on the enemy? Come on, Rob, start start us in prayer. So mighty God, we thank you for this gathering. Lord, we thank you for this teaching that we're about to have to accomplish. Lord, we ask you to give us an opportunity, Lord, to clean things that we're doing. We need to step on the neck of the enemy. Well, that you would equip us and empower us from on high, buddy, to go into the enemy camp and take plunder, Jesus. Mighty God, we thank you for your Ruach on the Lord, we ask that your spirit fill this place now. Mighty God, as we, as we wait to have this knowledge bestowed upon us, Mighty God, would you open our minds that we would understand the scriptures, Lord God? Or would you open our eyes that we would see wonderful 
some things in your word. Mighty God, we want to please you, Lord God. We want to be filled with your spirit, Jesus. Lord, we want to know you more, mighty God. Lord, would you prepare our hearts, our minds, and our souls, mighty God. Be strengthened, Lord God. Lord, would you tune our ears to your speech? Mighty God, would you open our eyes that we can see what you're doing in us? Lord God, would you clear our minds any distractions, Lord God? Anything that's going on throughout the day. Anything that may be lingering and want to be a barrier to the knowledge you're giving us in what you Mighty God, we cast it down. We say that our eyes, our gaze is set upon you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you, Lord God. Lord, we, we love you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, which is the highlight of our lives. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be formed by your word. Mighty God, that our very mind, will, and emotions would be warned by the prophecy in your word. Lord, that our feet, our strength of our hands would be strengthened by the example of how to live out your word. We thank you, Jesus, for anointing us. Mighty God, with your blood and with your spirit to move us forward in your will. Tonight, we take your kingdom. Tonight, we move forward personally and corporately. Tonight, mighty God, we lift up your name above every name. Tonight, mighty one, you are the ultimate in this place. So while we wait on this to uh, come back up, tell me the T in Tanakh, what's it stand for? Torah. And what books comprise the Torah? And who wrote those books? And then when you get to the Navim, what does the Navim stand for? And when you get to the writings, what are their purpose? Direct your strength. Amen. When we begin to look at that then, with the book of Judges falling into prophecy, its purpose is not to form your heart. Its purpose is not to show you the right way to live. See, that's the purpose of the Torah, and that's the purpose of the Ketuvim. The Torah inclines your heart in what you should do. I'm back here. Uh, the Torah inclines... <laughs> the Torah inclines your heart in what you should do. Somebody read Deuteronomy 5, 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. See, the purpose of the Torah then is to form your heart. When we look at the prophets, somebody read 2 Kings 17, 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servant, the prophets. So then do you hear the difference between the law and the prophets? 
The law is to incline your heart so that you will know what God wants, whereas the prophets were there to warn you. So primarily when we look at the book of Joshua, (laughs) Joshua, the book of Judges, what we're looking at is a warning. Then the question becomes, I'm sorry, Gabriel. The question becomes, what are you being warned about? Okay, so if a prophet showed up at your house and he pointed his finger, he would be pointing out something. What do you think? Anybody in the room? What do you think that Judges is warning you about? Larissa, read the last verse of the book of Judges. When a society does as it sees fit, you get the kind of things that are recorded in the book of Judges, right? And that is a warning. When a society is in decline, when it is deteriorating, that is a, the book of Judges stands as a warning for what becomes possible. Even somebody who is a man of God makes a stupid vow and a daughter dies for it. Even somebody who is called a priest can be hired. Uh, A a great military leader uh, yields to a woman. Um, We can keep going with this. Uh, A Benjamite and his concubine, my goodness. In fact, while we're talking about some of that, I'd like to give you a few headlines that could have come from the book of Judges. Is that all right? Yes. Then we'll go back through these. When we're thinking of a few headlines that could have come from the book of Judges, woman judge says to travelers, you're no longer safe on the highways. That sounds like it could come from a supermarket tabloid. Family feud leaves 69 brothers dead. That could be in a Mexican newspaper. Powerful government leader caught in love nest. Yeah. Of course, who are we talking about? We have Judges 4, a woman warning people. We have Judges 9, Abimelech uh, killing his 69 brothers. Powerful government caught uh, in love nest, uh, Samson, and Judges 16. How about this one? Hold your ears. Gang rape leads to victims' death and dismemberment. That's a Bible story. But it could be a tabloid headline, couldn't it? That's Judges 19. How about this one? Girls at party kidnapped and forced to marry strangers. (laughs) Sounds like we're somewhere in East Europe, doesn't it? It's, It's Judges 21 and the Benjamites and their wives. It's important then to grab this in its historical context its biblical context, but also in our lives, right? Because since any one of those headlines would fit into today's newspaper, that tells us that we're living somewhere in the time period of the judges. Um, I don't know whether we're going to be able to cast that or not. I'm going to try one more time because I have maps and things that I I just want to show you. I certainly don't need them. But when I'm thinking of the... Are you working on it or am I? When I'm thinking of the uh, content of the book of Judges, an image came to mind. And uh, I don't know what's happening here. 
How many of you have been to a movie that was uh, G-rated? We haven't seen one of those in a long time, right? Generally accepted audience, right? And uh, what does PG stand for? Parental guidance. Parental guidance. This would mean that people ought to be assisted by their parents to assimilate the information that is being given, huh? And then what is R? Restricted. Restricted, right? And then there's there's one more. NC. I was thinking about where the book of Judges would fit on the scale. I mean, when you have people being raped and dismembered, is that a G level audience? Probably not, is it? And then when you start reading the background of maybe how JL overcame Sisera. You know, I, I don't know whether you like spy novels, whether uh, mystery and intrigue is your deal. I, I mean, I hope what you're really fascinated with is the Word of God, but can I tell you, this is a book that has it all. Yeah. I mean, it's a book that has every bit of it in there. I'm going to see real quick if we can cast one more time. If we can't, then we'll just move forward because we're going to have an anointed meeting, whether media works right or not. Something's on the screen. All right, these were our movie ratings. <laughs> uh, our headlines, I wrote for you. But uh, now that that's over and you're no longer impressed. Not true. Let me come back this way. When we're considering then the ordering of the Tanakh, in Luke 24, you know this, many of you, but those that don't, I want you to know where it's derived from. You need to recognize that the Tanakh's ordering and arrangement, it was not from the Jewish people. It is and it's not. It's from God because, look, Jesus quotes this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written Look at the order here. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. That word psalms there is, uh, can mean psalms, but it more accurately means writings. Do you know what that means? We ordered our Bible differently than Jesus told us to. That's interesting, isn't it? He is endorsing the three major divisions of the Jewish Bible at that point, And endorsing them in the order that they were given. What gives us the right to change the order? See, Second Chronicles would have been the last book. You know what the first book was? Anybody? Genesis. And in Genesis 4, what brother kills another brother? And in Second Chronicles, we have a murder between the altar and the portico of the temple. This means that when Jesus is talking with somebody and he says, from uh, the righteous blood of Abel, all the way to Zechariah, who was killed between this and this. He's endorsing all of the scripture in between the first and the last book of the Hebrew Bible, but we miss that because that's not the order of our Bible. In our Bible, Malachi is the last book, uh, right? At least in the Older Testament. When we go through these, we just gave the five books in order. Their names in Hebrew, Bereshit, Shemot, Ve'ikra, Be'midbar, and Devarim, they're instructive. Because Bereshit is taken, in fact, each one of these is taken from the first few words in Hebrew. In the beginning, 
Uh, these are the names he called in the desert and gave his word. When you see that, we're going to depart from it when we get to the book of Judges. Hmm. And that asks that all of a sudden you need to go, why? <laughs> if every Hebrew book started a certain way and they were named and their Hebrew name is the beginning, why is the book of Judges different? Yeah. And then, of course, you hear that it tells the story. Bereshit, who is in the beginning, Shemot, these are the names, Ve'ikra, he called, Be'midbar, desert, Devarim, words. It tells your story. It tells my story. Mm -hmm. That from the beginning, he knew the names of the people that he was calling out of a desert by his word. Well, the book of Judges has something very similar to it. In fact, he tells us how to win in the first chapter because he knows he's about to describe 19 and a half chapters of losing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll come back to that. So, when you move then to the prophets, the vast majority of the Bible is not the law and is not the writings. The vast majority of the books in the Bible are actually prophets. You know what that tells you? When you are born again, there is a portion of the word that is to instruct your very spirit to get you born again. There is a portion of the word that is to instruct you in your daily practice, but you know where the big battle goes on? In your soul, your mind, will, and emotions all of the time. And if you can ever get your spirit and your soul to gang up on your flesh, your flesh will do what the other two say, but that's not the way it goes most of the time. Most of the time, your flesh wants, your mind justifies, and your heart is dragged along with the other two. So that's why I wanted you to see the visual example. It's kind of overwhelming. The 12 prophets that are called minor are called minor for their length. Their content is certainly not minor. The writings then were, of course, to instruct us in how to walk things out. It's why so many people like the Psalms. It's why when you see Daniel living in Babylonian captivity, but living righteously, you find hope. It's why when you see Ruth, who is in the time period of the judges, while judges doesn't instruct you in the right way to live, Ruth does. Look at the difference in the sections there. When reading Ruth, you can see what you should do daily. When reading judges, you do not see yeah. what you should do daily. What you see is a warning about just how wicked all of society will get. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see the difference between those things? Yes. God ordained their separations. I wrote here for us, when looking at the Tanakh, it's important to understand that the phrase itself is an acronym for the Torah. And that ought to help you remember that God, who arranged the books of his Bible in a tripartite way, is addressing you, who he, had, he arranged in a tripartite way. But there's something else in history. From the founding of Israel, we're talking about the law. In other words, the first five books have to do with how Israel became a nation. You think Genesis is the story of the creation of the world? We hear that all of the time. Genesis is about the creation. Really? Because there's two chapters dedicated to it. All the rest of it is to the formation of a specific nation. So on the balance of literature, would we say it's more about the creation of the world or the creation of Israel? Israel. Israel. So Genesis tells us 
how Israel comes into being. Exodus tells us how they were enslaved and then birthed as a nation or born again. Uh, Leviticus tells us how he set apart special priests so that they could come before him and never lose their way. Numbers tells us a story about when they did lose their way. Uh, Deuteronomy is the regathering and getting them back on track so they could be led into the land that they were supposed to go into. It tells a story. Uh, The prophets, all of them, including the book of Judges, they talk about the time period between the promised land and captivity chronologically, but their unified theme is to warn you of something, that sin causes captivity. So, anybody here ever sinned and gotten away with it? You don't know what to do with that, do you? See, you think you got away with it. He said, no, 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 we know at the end there'll be a judgment. No, you're going to find out in the book of Judges that what they did at Kanesh Bardia in Numbers 13 is still having effects on society 100 years later. It is still having... Nobody gets away with anything. Sin is like cancer. It, it just degrades everything around it. You think you got away because you were not smart enough to discern mm-hmm. the consequence. Yeah. In fact, Psalm 36. Somebody read Psalm 36, the first few verses. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Do you see, we think we get away with sin because we don't really detect its effects upon us. The three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, would teach you about the founding of Israel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It would teach you about the time period from the promised land to captivity, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Judges has got lots of ugly in it. And then in the Ketuvim, You see people living at the height of Israel's glory, like Solomon, and how to live faithful. And, of course, you see in him a lot of unfaithfulness. You see people in the lowest places of captivity in in the writings like Daniel. And you see him do well. Uh, You see people in every facet of life in the writings and how to do well. And it's just worth noting that when Israel was doing well, the writings, the Ketuvim, displayed the men not doing well. When Israel was not doing well, the people recorded in the Ketuvim, the writings, they did very well, personally. In other words, your circumstances being good around you might not be the thing that you need to do well spiritually. To do well spiritually you might need some hostility in the circumstances that are around you. In fact, in our ministry, we try to create that for you by just pummeling you with the Word of God. I hope you were encouraged Sunday. I hope every person was. I also hope you feel beat up. You should. You should. If you're not, if you don't, then you weren't applying it. You weren't thinking deeply enough about how it affects you personally. Okay? Um... We covered some of these. But in Deuteronomy 6.4, you hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your, what's it say? Heart. And with all of your soul. And with all of your strength. So knowing that you were a three-part being, God put three parts in his book to help you get those on track. I think I quoted these two earlier from memory. Deuteronomy 5.29 addresses your heart, and of course it comes from the law. Um, 2 Kings 17.13 tells you that the prophet's were there to warn you, and it addresses your soul. Yes. I did not read to you Isaiah 35 or 38, 15. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things men live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Are you getting the uh, impression that the prophets are a little bit hard on you? Yeah? Do you know there were none of the prophets that they didn't try to kill? I mean, Jesus said that. Which of, which of the prophets did your forefathers not try to kill? Why? Because when you recognize how righteous God is and how unrighteous you are, it is agonizing to the soft and pliable soul. Yeah? Yeah. Judges is going to put you in that position regularly. I promise it is. The role of the Naveen, even on a Peshat level, is to warn you. The book of Judges is strongly prophetic in this regard. Throughout the book, we're going to draw strong parallels between the condition of their nation and ours, between the condition of the average population and ours, between the believers and within the book of Judges and believers within our time period today. I'm going to try to persuade you that we're living in a time period that is frighteningly similar to the book of Judges. And it could be noted here that when you read that verse that Larissa read earlier, Judges 21-25, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit, that the events contained within the book of Judges are not primarily to instruct you on how you should live as with the Ketuvim, a book like Ruth, but rather they point out the effects of sin on society and they tell us we are headed for captivity. So in the book of Judges, you're going to see that they sinned, that an oppressor came, and that God sent a deliverer. And that cycle is a mini version of captivity and release. It's a catch and release program. <laughs> but on a larger scale, what is happening? This is a time period when there is no king. What's the book after Judges? We go, to, we go to Ruth, which occurs within the book of Judges, a righteous person in a time the prophets were warning, and then we go to 1 Samuel. Who is anointed king in 1 Samuel? Saul. Who's anointed king in 2 Samuel? So what you see as a larger, a macro view, is when the people have no king, they do crazy things, including rape, dismemberment, uh, uh, fraternicide, killing your brother, every crazy, the priesthood is for hire. And so then they get a king, but it's not the king that God wanted. And... A righteous king has to come and displace him. I wrote that like this. In Judges, there is no king. In 1 Samuel, we have a king preferred by men 
and ultimately despised by God. But in 2 Samuel, a king despised by men and ultimately preferred by God. Come on, tell me that's not beautiful. God did that over hundreds of years, but he did it to teach you something. We need a king in our life. But if you pick your own king, you end up detestable to God. It's going to take the king that he picked. And notice, David did not overthrow Saul at the time of his choosing. He waited and left it in God's hands. He didn't know the day or hour that it would happen. But God said it would happen, and it did. Who does that sound like? It really does. Anyone with spiritual eyes should not have to strain, at least not heavily, to see that the time of judges is like the time that is raising up an antichrist who will be supplanted by King Jesus, the son of David. What happens is we can look at what's happening in Judges and it becomes a pattern that tells us what it is like before the Antichrist Saul rises and is later supplanted by Jesus. So from that standpoint, it doesn't just warn your soul. It forms a pattern that tells you what is going to happen, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. In the book of Judges, it starts off relatively good. By the end of it, we have a whole nation at war and the genocide of the Benjamite people. What do you think is going to happen before the Antichrist is supplanted by Jesus? Okay, do you, you beginning to feel me at this point? We tend to think of prophecy as the prediction of a future event. For Hebrews, it's a pattern that's laid down that you can recognize. We're going to identify patterns in the book of Judges that you will be able to recognize. In the absence of Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, God raised up, delivers to bring physical and emotional and spiritual deliverance to His people who had come under captivity because of the sin of their nation. There is a term for those deliverers in Hebrew. And I want I actually tell you to turn it off. I meant for you to turn it on. Uh, that term in Hebrew is where we derive the title for the book of Judges. It's Strong's number 8199, Shaphat. And it's a verb meaning to judge or to govern. Now, that's the verb. When you take it and make it a noun, the verb shafet becomes a noun when it is used as a title and takes on a slightly different pronunciation. Shofet. In the plural, judges is shofetim. The book of judges is called the book of shefotim. Sefer shofotim in Hebrew. And One of the things that is really neat about that is the word has to do with deliverance. It has to do with rulership. But it's Savior. It's a book of saviors. That's kind of exciting. That's the kind of book that I would like to study more. Uh, While we're on this topic... Uh, because we had screens going on and off and computers crashing and every work of hell 
Uh, one more time. Since the Torah inclines your heart, but the prophets warn your soul, we're not going to derive our major doctrines from the book of, of Judges because the entire thing itself is a warning that is telling you this is a society in decline who's rejected God as their king. Yeah. Okay. However, the book of Ruth that is occurring during the same time period as the Judges was included in the writings, the Ketuvim, precisely because it shows you the right way to live during such crooked times. Really good. Do you remember when we covered Ruth in four weeks of December? Yeah. The extent to which it tells you about Jesus? Oh, that's amazing, huh? Now that we're talking about the Shephatim, I want to show you something else. The Shin. In its paleo form, down in the bottom right corner where it says ancient, this was intended to look like two front teeth. I actually like it in its book version. And if you ever wonder which one God liked the best, there is actually a shin stamped into the earth in the mountain range between Bethel and Jerusalem that is unmistakable on a satellite image. Wow. And it looks like the modern book one. So apparently God knew the letter would evolve. But when you're looking at it, it's a picture of teeth, but it's intended to convey sharp, press, or eat. Y'all, many of you have these charts in your Bible. <laughs> Secondly, the second letter, pay. It's intended to look like a mouth. See, we have a crooked smile in the bottom right-hand corner. Its image of a picture of mouth conveyed the concept of blow, scatter, or edge. The next letter was tet, not chet, but tet. It looked a little bit like a basket and conveyed the concept of surrounding, mud, or containing. The last letter was a mem. In the bottom right-hand corner, it looks a little bit like a wave of the ocean or water. And you know that it carries with it the concepts fourfold of water, chaos, blood, and might. Many of you, this is not new to. When you begin to put that together, putting it all together, the Shofatim are God's deliverer, ruler, or judge, but the paleo for it is they sharply press the blown edge to surround or contain mighty chaos. Blown edge of what? Of the sword that is the word of God. See, every once in a while, a man of God would take God's word seriously and he would rise up with the revealed word of God and he would confront the oppression of his day. That's what a judge does. Amen. And it took Gideon, who was hiding, to hear the words, you're a mighty warrior. And God breathed that word into him through an angel. And then he rose up and acted on it and he became a sharp edge that went out and contained and surrounded the mighty. Amen. He delivered his people. He, he, he took on the enemy. And man, what would the headline say in Gideon's death? Massive military cuts leave us unable to defend our nation. <laughs> you know, I mean, we go from 300,000 down to, you know, 300. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Or uh, General's battle plan involves no ammunition. 
You know, I mean, I was trying to think of, of, of some of these because I wanted to hold your interest tonight. But also, because as bad as things were then, honestly, you can see it now. I mean, I, I have to ask the, I, I, I'm only 43, and I have to ask the young people sometimes, what does that mean? I'm always disappointed when they answer the question. Whatever's going on in society that I'm missing, I'm missing for a reason. Because it's wicked, and we're supposed to be innocent in regard to what is evil. I say each of these things because I wanted you to be able to contextualize the book of Judges so that we can make application to your life as we go forward. Uh, Now, let me show you a little bit about uh, another place that Judges contains and our nation contains. This is a pretty popular model. It's taught in schools all around the world. The, it, it's the uh, uh, titler or titler uh, scale for a nation. He was a Scottish judge, which uh, is strangely fitting, and a historian <laughs> who uh, served as a professor of history. He also was an expert in Greek and Roman antiquities uh, at the University of Edinburgh. Smart guy. Uh, this scale is taking place between 1747 and 800. Um, sorry, 1813, and uh, the Titler scale. You probably hear people refer to, but may never have seen it. It says that that nations are birthed out of bondage. There's no reason to move on from your present circumstances if you don't feel oppression, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, our Declaration of Independence is a declaration that we want to be liberated from bondage. This scale follows the judges, and it follows human history. We start in bondage, we move towards spiritual faith because of the bondage. That breeds courage for us. That spiritual faith and courage always cause freedom. That freedom takes you to a place of abundance. And this is where the negative turn makes. See, when you have enough to not go off to war, when David no longer had to go to war, when you have uh, walled cities and houses, this is always when things begin to turn. Because abundance leads to selfishness. Selfishness to complacency. Complacency to apathy. Apathy to dependence. And dependence straight into bondage. Now, I'm curious, as a nation, I think that our largest area is somewhere between selfishness and apathy right now. But what what's coming? See, we're living. We're living in the time period of the judges. Now, what you're going to see is because the book of Judges takes place over about 400, 410 years, something like that, you're going to see this cycle repeat many times through the lifespan of each judge. But every time it ought to be laying down a pattern for you so that you can look and go, man, when I didn't have anything, when I was just sitting in a jail cell praying, was I closer to the Lord or further from the Lord than when He gave me everything? When you didn't have your spouse, 
Were you hungering for the Lord because you needed from Him? See, it's the poor who are rich in faith. But it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And so the more you've been entrusted with, if you don't build character right alongside it, 100% of the time you end up moving to selfishness and apathy and dependence and bondage. Um, We need to be very, very careful that we're instructed. You know, you've heard all of the quotes about those that don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Another famous one uh, by Hegel is uh, if we've learned anything from history, it's that we don't learn from history at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably, probably pretty accurate. Um, now that we've gone through those kind of observations, I want to talk to you about chapter 1 and 2 of uh, Judges. How many, how many chapters do you think we'll do tonight? Of, of the chapter, how many verses do you think we'll get to tonight? One verse. Three. Three. Seven. What's my favorite number? Seven. We're going to do seven verses tonight. To do the seven verses, though, you'll need to know some things. I, I, one of the reasons that I'm a little scattered tonight is working from um, 1 o'clock forward. Really, really excited. I then had an epiphany that made me reorder and change all of this. And most of it we're going to teach another time. Because if your title of your book doesn't come in the first few verses, that shocked me a little bit. And when I saw a pattern breaking, I had to wonder what I was missing. But I found it. Okay, let's go to Judges 2. And somebody start in verse 6. If you want to make a note ahead of time, the title to the book of Judges comes from Judges 2.16. So we're a full chapter into the book of Judges before we get to the subject of the book of Judges. That's different than all of the other books. Okay, uh, Natalie, read. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Tamoth Haris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. Now, I hold here at Mount Gosh. Like a Yankee. Um, Doesn't this sound like this would be the beginning of the book since Joshua 24 ends with his valedictory speech and all of those things? I started to realize something. It looks a lot like the first chapter is an introduction or a preamble or even an insertion. It's almost like before things get really, really bad, and they're going to get bad in a hurry, let us tell you about the last time we were doing good so that our story doesn't start in bondage. Because if it starts in bondage, do you know what you are? A victim. But if it starts in victory and then moves to bondage, what are you? You're somebody who is declining and need to repent. 
See, it's the difference between the way that we, we look at ourselves right now. You're either a victim of all of the circumstances around you, or you're a victor who has just yielded to the circumstances around you and need to repent. One is something you can do nothing about, and the other is something you must do something about. Right? The book of Judges doesn't start in defeat. In fact, you read the first chapter. Jennifer did. They go in and put a smackdown on a mighty king. And they drag him without his thumbs and toes uh, to a place where he had subdued how many other kings? Seventy. It's an enormous victory. That's not a people who are falling. It starts off with them hearing from God, right? Who do we send first? They asked God, and he told them. That's extraordinary. But by chapter 2, we're going to find really yucky things. So why did it start there? It started there so we would have the right emphasis. Okay, And I want to show you how bad it gets, and then we're going to go back and look at the first seven verses, and there's a message in it for you today. Sometimes you just got to go to the last place you want. Sometimes you just got to go back to the things that you did at first. Isn't this when we have seven churches in Revelation? Isn't this what the first church, the church at Ephesus, is told? You got to return to your first love. See, if all God's blessings brought you to a place of apathy, complacency, and bondage, then maybe you've got to go back and get a little bit of scrap in you. Maybe you've got to go back and fight for it a little bit. Maybe you've got to quit sitting on your salvation and stand up and do something. Amen. Because when everything's on the line, God tends to come through. Okay? When you don't feel everything on the line, you don't call on it. Okay. So it's usually when you feel like you're losing your children that you get a breakthrough with them. It's usually when you feel like the whole world's crushing weight is about to obliterate you that you get saved from that. It's at precisely the time you need a great Savior that one appears. Okay. So be very cautious at times in your life you don't need a great Savior. The worst thing that could happen to you is you have everything you want when you want it. Let's keep reading, Natalie. After that, the whole after that whole generation had been gathered to their father, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Can when you see the word Baals? We're going to go back to this in another week. I'm, uh, that's why no Hebrews on the screen, no, uh, no paleo, none of those things. Paleo means Lord. Can you serve the Lord's? See, see, what's happening is they're rejecting the only ruler in their life. They've not been told or don't care what God did for their grandparents coming out of Egypt. And of course, the grandparents died in the desert because they were unfaithful. And then the generation who went in and took the land, they they took over. They 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 went in and fought for it, but now they have died. And we're in the third generation, which should be the most powerful of them all. And they don't even know who God is. You know, I want to hint at something for you here. If you move that whole timetable back to where it should have been, though, if Numbers 13, where they refused to go into the land, had never occurred, Mm -hmm. and they had gone in, 
we would have had Moses alive and Joshua alive for the conquest of the land. And we would have had Joshua alive into the time period of the judges. How might history have looked differently if they had not disobeyed? See, when I say you can't calculate the cost of your sin today, their sin at Kadesh Barnea is still hurting people three generations later. They're not around to see it. Please don't think that you can click and get away with it because nobody saw it. Don't, don't, don't think that. It's hurting somebody. I mean, you're providing an industry that is enslaving someone at the other end of that. Please don't think you can sit on your salvation, not represent God well, sit back and lead a soft, comfortable life, and it will not cost somebody something. Every person you don't share the gospel with that you were supposed to, what if somebody sharing Islam with them right now? I mean, think through this for a minute. You're disobedient. That day you rewarded yourself with, for some of you, the month or decade you've rewarded yourself with, where you didn't do anything for the Lord. I mean, you just hung out around the blessings of God, but never made a disciple, never took the teachings of the church seriously. You don't know who is not born again because of it. You don't know who that is. You don't have the ability to calculate the cost of your sin. The book of Judges shows us what that's like so that you wouldn't have to. So that you could look and just be warned. I don't want to live in a world that looks like this. Do you remember when we had Keith Phillips read the beginning of Ruth and it sounded like a a movie intro? In the time when the judges ruled, there was one man. You know? The reason it sounds like uh, an action-adventure is because you desperately need a hero in times like that. Okay? Well, that's what your sin causes. It's what my sin causes, too. Let's keep going with it. The Baals were lords. They traded in the one true God for lesser gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherah. Okay, hold. First he said they served Baals. Lords. (laughs) Now he says Baal, singular, and Asherahs, plural. Did you hear that switch? Yes. Baals are various gods. But when you say Baal, we're referring to a false lord. It's another way of saying Satan. But why is Ashtoreth plural? Ashtoreth was the female deity. And she comes in many, many forms. But it's still one satanic power. Okay? Ashtoreth is called the queen of heaven. Who else has that title? Um, I forget anyway I've never been that bright but female deities around the globe God says through his book of prophecy that when people do whatever is right in their own eyes they simply remake the, the spiritual worship and whatever they want it to be whether it's male or female think on that for a minute Okay, keep going huh in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, 
just as he, as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Hold. Think about the last time you were in great distress. Because great distress is when God raises up a deliverer for you. And when we're thinking about this time period of great distress, what does he call their enemies? Raiders. Raiders. Is that how you would think about them? We've just come out of the book of Joshua, so you think about them as the inhabitants of the land that had to be driven out. But in Joshua 13, actually, somebody with a Bible open. Turn to Joshua 13, read the first couple verses. When Joshua was old, and will Joshua advanced, was what? Old. old. And will advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old. There are still... Don't you love that, that God said that? The Ancient of Days looked at Joshua and said, Dude, you're old. Ever consider moisturizing? This is getting ugly. I'm going to take you home, sir. All kidding aside, start again and read it. Think about what's happening here. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that still remains. Okay. I'll Hold here, because you, you, you're getting the idea. Joshua was too old to go take all the rest of the land. He didn't have enough time to finish his work. Are you hearing me? Yeah. We say, oh, it's grace, it's mercy, God will work it out, he'll work it out another day. If you wait too long to do your calling... You might not be able to finish it, and there's not anything anybody can do about that. Uh The craziness that we see ensue is, don't forget, Joshua had a 40-year delay. Caleb had a 40-year delay. Not to mention the experience, the wisdom, everything else that was lost in that unfaithful generation. You cannot sit back, cross your arms, and wait, and just, it'll all work out. It causes the time period of the judges. Have you ever wondered why it is that David is of the tribe of Judah, and Judah had been prophesied to be a king, but they picked somebody from the tribe of Benjamin? How do you have the king Saul when you're supposed to have, Genesis 49.10, somebody rise out of Judah? Well, David was just a little boy. We're, our timetable is all messed up. Wow. Why? Because of sin. And then, when David is anointed, he's still not ready. Saul reigns how many years? Forty. Forty years. Wow. It's interesting wow. how that keeps coming up, huh? Now, I'm, again, I'm teaching extemporaneously here. It's not like I'm reading from notes. <coughs> Your sin will cost you and others time, even if it doesn't cost them their lives. I got a lot of things wrong, but I fell in love with him at 18 years old, and there have been no weeks off. Okay? Uh, I'm not some special class of person. I'm an ordinary Christian. But when you work diligently the production that comes from faith. His life's changed. 
you need to honestly look at your life and say, how many years have I wasted and how, how long can I afford to continue that? Okay? You're getting strong messages <coughs> about discipleship and stuff right now. You're being told to attach yourself to church. You're being told to let your children attach to church. How seriously have you, can you really wait till the last two years that are in your house and, and, and think you can make up for that? No. You can't. You need to let that settle in on you. The time period of the judges, it's the result of generations not doing what they should. And what we're going to find out in coming weeks is they make four very key errors over and over and over. Let me show you what they are. You might be doing them. You can go ahead and put that on the screen. I want people to get this in their notes. They refuse to fight the enemy. You know the four or five things that are attacking your spouse? You know the four or five things that are attacking your children? In what way are you warring against them? Let me say this really loudly, too. I, I didn't, I'm teaching on the book of Judges, so I might as well just do it. Um, if you have video games in your house, you're stupid. I want you to hear that from me. Your pastor, I love you. You're a fool. Yes, it's a good word. We have a generation of people who are 30 years old and cannot quit playing video games, and you're going to teach your children to play them until they're how old? Yeah. When will it stop? Right. Exactly. That is so stupid. And I've been ministering to people now for 20 years that are addicted to porn. And now, you know what's going hand in hand with it? Video games. Video games. Okay? Uh, throw that crap out of your house. Amen. I'm not going to come and look. But please, don't, don't expect any symptoms. I will not spare you. And when a child learns it from their parents... I feel like you're poisoning your kids with drugs. Yeah. They refuse to fight the enemy. They spare the enemy when they do fight. In other words, throughout the book of Judges, you're going to see that when they finally get up on top, they spare the enemy. That was hinted at tonight. How many times do we take Jerusalem in the Bible? How many times do we take Hebron in the Bible? They fight, but they don't beat them all. They stop before they're done. Third one. They imitate the very enemy that they're there to destroy. Read Deuteronomy 6 and see, they're supposed to love the Lord with all their heart. They're supposed to break down all pagan idolatry. They're not supposed to imitate it. They end up obeying the very enemy they're supposed to rule over. Those four things we're going we're gonna to see grow throughout this book. In chapter 1, it's my position that it's a preamble, that the Holy Spirit is showing us the last of their greatness before it gets really, really bad, so we can see why it got bad beforehand. Tonight, we're going to examine their victory. We're going to venture then into their decline. But first, we need to focus on their victory. Okay? Uh, we're going to cover exactly seven verses tonight. And uh, 
we will then move into the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what you're, what you're going to see in that is this is a bright spot in the book. And then it's going to get really, really bad, and they're going to cry out in great distress. And Natalie, what was the next verse you had to read? Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. When they were in great distress, the Lord raised up somebody to save them. You can think I'm being mean to you tonight. What if it's your last opportunity to repent and get your family right? Amen. What if it's the very last time? Do it. Thank you, I've just, I just got to say it clearly. We all are called to different things. But have you become comfortable with watching somebody get born again, spend one year in our church, and then run so much faster than you they can no longer even see you in their rearview mirror? Are you getting comfortable with that? Is it okay in your mind that somebody can spend two years in discipleship here and outproduce your 20 years? Are you okay with that? See, the word says we're supposed to spur one another on. So when I see brothers doing things that I never dreamed of in the first few years, you know what that makes me want to do? More. More. You were brought here for a reason. You are. You're put here because God wants something from you. Now here's some really, really good news. For none of us is it too late. Yeah. I have now witnessed 20 year gaps in God's plan in our lives. Things that he told Charlie and told me were going to happen in 1993 and watch selfishness and complacency and apathy bring a whole church into bondage to the place that it almost doesn't exist anymore. And he reconstituted it on a different side of the Sabine River, Jordan River. (laughs) And raised up something for the very same purpose. And some of us have the privilege of having been in it all. Whole time. Now what you want is the accolade of having been fruitful everywhere you've ever been. You want that. You want that. And then you reach across the river and you help the church that was in decline come back to its place of prominence. And we're doing that too. But that's all off off subject. Okay. What we want to do is we want to go back to Judges 1, and that's where we're going to start. Again. (laughs) After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? One thing that I love about this is we're going to find out in the book that they no longer um, know the Lord that, that did all of the things before, but... At least at this point. Maybe their last great battle. Before they go into battle, what are they doing? And isn't that the secret to success? Isn't that the difference between Jericho and I? I'm going to encourage you when you go to pray about something before the Lord to guard the motives of your heart. If you go to beseech God to agree with you, Well, Balaam did that. Balaam did that. And what do you do if he does? See, he let Balaam go. 
He told him not to go. And Balaam kept crying out and kept crying out. And he said, okay, fine, go. What you may not know is that God may give you what you want in greater amounts than you wanted it just so that you were punished by your own action. Did they want other meat other than uh, than mammals? Did they get other meat? Yeah. Until it came out their nose. When you go to pray, you need to sincerely be asking God what His will is, not asking God to agree with you. Okay. Nothing corrupts a prayer life more than walking into it with predetermined motives. Okay. Um, they start to pray. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. I'm going to show you a, a map of Judah's territory in a minute. Right now we don't need to, but well, we're not wearing out Matthew with the remote. But apparently, Bezek and Adonai Bezek and the Canaanites and uh, Perizzites that uh, Adonai Bezek is ruling over are within Judah's land. Because he says, go back and read the verse again. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Why is Judah to go? It's his responsibility. Only you can fight for your inheritance. A brother can go with you and help you. But a brother was never supposed to do it for you. You cannot ride on the shoulders of somebody else into your inheritance. You have to fight for your inheritance. This is why if somebody's got an addiction issue, you can't do it for them. Until they want to do it more than you want them to do it, nobody ever succeeds. When I say addiction issue, did you think I was talking about alcohol or drugs? I meant to sin. To sin. Anything other than the will of God. See, until you want to do it more than your pastor wants you to do it, more than your wife wants you to do it, more than somebody else wants to do it, you'll never get it done. But when you take responsibility for your inheritance, then we can all rush in and help. Amen. And you might find out that God will multiply that effort. He's capable of redeeming time for you, yes. which is also good news. Yes. Keep going, brother. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. They said to the Simeonites, their brother. One more time here, Matthew. <laughs> Simeonites, their brother. Uh, we're going to start off with Abraham and Sarah. And uh, we've got a little Ishmael mistake on the west side of your screen. And um, then after Sarah has died, Abraham marries Keturah and they have children. But when Isaac marries Rebekah, they produce Jacob and Esau. When Jacob marries Leah and Rachel at the same time and ends up with Beulah and Zilpah, notice that at the bottom of the screen, we'll make that bigger for you. Notice that Judah and Simeon both share the same mother and father. Whereas, say, Asher and Judah share a father but not the same mother. Those kind of family divisions, they cause problems. Mixed families are very difficult, period. They always have been. That's why God never endorsed uh, polygamy at any, at any time. Yeah. He, he uh, acknowledged its existence, but he never said it as a model. And um, here, 
Judah turns to Simeon for two reasons. One is, they were actually their tribes, blood-related through father and mother. Uh, I mean, they all are, but, but uh, not a concubine here. They grew up in the same tent because your uh, children were separated by your mother's tent, uh, each mother in a separate tent. They spent time with each other in that regard. Okay. Now, we're, we're many, many years after that. But my point is that Judah and Simeon stayed close. You have no idea how a brother in the faith that is also related could be a blessing to you. I want to encourage you, if you are lucky enough have a blood relative that is legitimately in the faith, don't take that lightly. Many of us have none. Many of us have none. So Judah turns to Simeon for two reasons. One is they're related. The second is right here. Their territories that God assigned them were next to each other. They're not just next to each other. Where is Simeon? Inside of Judah. Can I tell you that there are callings in this room that cannot take place rightly? If you don't work with, with the people that God's put there for you. It just won't work. Okay? What do Israel and Turkey have to do with each other? Well, I just wanted you to see their tribal allotment. Now, while we're talking about that, God answers. Go ahead and answer us. God answers. Sin. Oh, sorry. The Lord answered. Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Keep going. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. Look at this. This is profound in ways that you need to, to gather. should be noted that Simeon's territory was within Judah's. What does Simeon mean? Hearing. What does Judah mean? Praise. Praise. Let's go back and look at the map. You can't hear from God. You can't. Simeon, maybe you're not located inside of Judah. Let that sit for a minute. You never hear rightly from God until you are praising Him rightly. You need to put Simeon inside of Judah for this to work right. Judah, praising God, goes first. Who joins him? Hearing from God. Simeon. In every battle that you face, every battle, you're going to have to find a way to praise God in that battle. That allows you to then hear from him. And do you know what hearing from him does? He says, in turn, we will go into battle with you as well. When you hear from him, do you know what you want to do after that? Praise more. And it's a reciprocal relationship. You don't hear him because you don't praise him. If you praise him, you'll start to hear him. Those two go into battle together, and then having heard him, you want to praise him more. It is a... Uh, reciprocal or symbiotic relationship in that way. The people I know that hear from God the best are grateful for everything that He has already shown them. So you don't know, Eric, I, I love to worship. Yes, I know, but you don't 
praise him for what he's already told you. So no, I, I, I praise him. I praise him all the time. You're not hearing me. If you never did what he told you to do, you're not praising him. You follow me? What a good word. See, you can have two sons, Jesus said. And one, say, I'll go and never go. That's the man who shows up at praise and worship and is so thankful for all of the prophecies and things, but he never does it. You can have another that's not sure what to think about it when you say. He may even tell you no, but later he goes. The second man's praising. He's praising through his actions. You accept or deny God's word through your actions. So let me ask you tonight, what have you already heard that you haven't done? What has he already told you and you have not made good on it? You better cure that. Preach it. What are you bitter about? And you need to start thanking him for so that you can hear the right way to move forward. Simeon and Judah have a lifelong relationship. In fact, God completely surrounded Simeon with Judah. What do you know about Simeon and Levi in their early days of Genesis? Rambunctious. What was it? Rambunctious. Rambunctious. That's a nice way to put it. They went in and killed everybody at Shechem, didn't they? In their anger, they did that. You want to you wanna keep yourself under control? Put your territory right in the center of the stronger brother. Come on. Man, are y'all hearing how these messages go together? You know, in this chapter... Judah and Simeon go and liberate Jerusalem. And in this chapter, Benjamin loses Jerusalem. Sometimes, not hanging out in the strength of your unity with your brothers, it costs a lot. Okay. Uh, keep reading, Mr. Linton. Oh, okay. When Judah attacked... I'm going to throw that computer across the room. Uh, <laughs> Help us out, man. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. They struck down the 10,000 men at Bezek. you got to love that. They struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. When you're trying to get an idea of how big a battle this is, okay, at Bezek, 10,000 casualties, how many survivors? We don't know. But you'd have to have an army big enough to sustain 10,000 losses. He's not just a king over uh, the Perizzites. He's the king also over Canaanites. So he's got at least two of the seven nations that uh, he's, he's uh, king over parts of. And then enough to lose 10,000 men. How big a battle are we talking about? You know how many men died in Vietnam? Anybody? 50,000. Yeah, 78 is the uh, uh, highest official total that you'll find. And truthfully, that's because all of the missing and actions and stuff are now declared that. But 50,000 is what they said for ever and ever. 10,000 died in a single battle. I mean, the reason that I'm saying that is I'm trying to get you to get an idea of who Adonai Bezek is. Mm -hmm. Keep going. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him. Putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Adonai Bezek fled but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Oh, man. Now, we're going to talk about some reasons for this. Do you know what the premier weapon of the day is? Somebody tell me. You know, you come with a sword. I would, uh, 
He comes with a spear. And I'm going to shoot you both from a greater distance with a bow. Uh, a bow is a, is a pretty big deal. Uh, anybody in here shoot bows? Wow, that's good. Uh, Brenton, stand up. Show me, show me an archer stance. Left foot forward. Pull your bowstring. Do it without your thumbs. Hold your bow without your thumbs. Pull your bowstring without your thumbs. You can't do that, can you? To cut off somebody's thumbs meant they had no way to defend themselves. Incidentally, it's pretty darn hard to hold on to a sword, too. Okay. Now, in, in uh, reference to your toes, to lose your big toe <coughs> requires gait training afterwards. In other words, in physical therapy, it's referred to as your great toe, not big toe. And <laughs> or Cheeto. The reason that it is your great toe is, is it's required for you to walk without special training. So what, what is happening is he's losing the ability to defend himself at all and the ability to go where he wants to go to either make an advance or a retreat. In other words, he's helpless. Okay. What does it mean to cut off your thumbs and toes? But what is his admission here? He said, then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their, with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. I want you to notice that Adonai Bezek saw it as divine retribution. That's what he saw it as. Adonai Bezek realized that what was being done to him was as a result of what he had done to other people. Is that incredible? Yeah. How many did he do it to? Seventy. There are 70 elders in Israel. There were 70 people who went into Egypt from uh, the family of Abraham. There were 70 of a lot of things. In Genesis 10, there are 70 nations in the world. You're beginning to get the idea that maybe these things represent something else. How would you spell Adonai? It's interesting. In the room, some said A-D-O-N-I. Others said A-D-O-N-A-I. Well, which is it? Your English translators trans, or, or transliterators are trying to make a distinction for you. This guy's got the same name as God. Adonai is a Hebrew name that means the sovereign Lord. You know what Bezek is? Lightning. He's the false god of lightning. Why is this chapter included before we really get started in chapter 2? Maybe it's about a broader struggle about the people of God who would have to lean on the need to praise God and hear from God because they were contending with a false god of lightning who liked to keep the kings of the world completely defenseless and under his table. Wow. Wow. 
Are you a lap dog for the devil? Or is he scared of you? Are you completely defenseless before him? Living on whatever crumbs he allows you to have? What falls from his table? Are you someone who attacks the gates of hell? Kicks them down? Drags its kings out? And does to them what they were doing to everyone else? What we find out in the book of Judges is what the people are called to be versus what they become. Mm -hmm. And nothing could be more sobering in all of the Bible than for you to look at what you are called to do <coughs> versus what you're actually doing. Mm -hmm. In the charismatic world, we love to talk a lot about the great call of God. Compare it with the actual life, though. Yeah. When does the great call of God happen? Can you waste another decade? When does it happen? So, well, so-and-so prophesied to me this, and so-and-so prophesied to me that. Yeah, do you know who gets to decide whether that's true or not? We do. You do, through your action. These people are called to drive every enemy out of their land. They do not do it, but for these seven verses... They are. Let's go to Leviticus 8. Somebody read 8, 22 through 24. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he sprinkled blood against the altar on all sides. Who are Aaron's sons? They'd have But who are they in the function of Israel? Priests. Priests had to be anointed on the lobe of their right ear with the blood of a sacrifice, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the great toe of their right foot. What was Adonai Zedek cutting off, by the way? Those thumbs and toes. Is there a false god of lightning that wants to cut off the mark of your anointing? Yes. Who wants to make you as base as the other guys that spend their lives eating Hot Pockets, playing video games, watching porn, and pretending to raise godly families? Wow. Wow. See, you can be a lapdog under the devil's table, and be sitting in church with people kicking down the gates of hell. Happens all of the time. Some of my <coughs> friends and people that I love for years have spent most of the time wearing a cute little sweater vest the devil put on them because they're just comfortable as hell. I'm not. I do not want to live like the book of Judges. And this is one of the last great moments in their history for 400 years. Do you know why? 
they heard from God and did what He said. Amen. You know what you'll have a chance to do tonight? Hear from God and do what He says. Amen. What a triumphant day. How, how tough must Adonai Bezek have been to have defeated 70 kings? 70! And to have been able to subject them in this kind of way. But Judah and little Simeon, contained within Judah's porch, <laughs> went out like David to Goliath. Because they carried an anointing. Where, what was anointed first? The right ear. The right ear. Hear from God. Wow. That's good. To filter everything that you hear through the blood of Jesus. This is why when you pray, your motives have got to be right. You can't hear right when your motives aren't right. Go pray about the truck you already want, and guess what happens? You end up with the truck you wanted, but now you're blaming it on God. You go die in your prayer closet. Say, Lord, I don't have the right to want anything. Having been crucified with your son just to stand here. What do you want for me? Well, that's a prayer that you might hear something from. You know why some people's discernment is so bad in this room? You can't hear from God to save your life. Because you never prayed with right motives. Wow. I know you. Go from one bad decision right into the next bad decision and the next bad decision. The reason you make the bad decisions, you're not dying with Christ. But on this day, their ear was anointed by the blood. Anointed. Do you think there's a significance as to why his ear wasn't taken? I really don't. I've wondered. Um, I think that if I had to guess at it, Tavo, and that's all I'm doing, I would say that many times in our lives we are doing something that is inherently spiritual. But we ourselves only grasp a certain percentage of that. And Adonai Bezek is not Satan. He's just a man being used of Satan. And uh, he probably didn't fully understand what he was doing. But can I tell you if Satan can cut off your thumb and your toe? You're kind of miserable because even if you could hear from God, you're no longer able to do it. Yes, ma'am. I think he was already dead, so I have nothing to cut it out. Could be. But these 70 are under the, the table of Adonai Bezek. Yeah. 70. And this is what he wanted to do to them. Now, I would like to emphasize to you at this point, I've had three computer crashes while speaking. We've got no notes here. The spirit has been dinging me, just smacking me upside the head with an urgency in the room for you. Yeah. Something that I had not planned on yeah. at all. Everything that you hear filtered through the blood of Christ. What does that mean practically? What does that mean? That means you have no desires unless he tells you that it should be your desire. It means that you have no ambition unless he tells you that it should be your ambition. It means that nobody but him gets to plan where you go to school what your work is, what you're going to do, where you live, nobody. No matter how much they might want to or you might want them to. Yeah. You must hear from God. Second, 
when you believe you've heard from God, the anointing of God better be the strength of the work of your hands. Which probably means that if it's neatly fitting within your hands already, you're not anointed to do it. Why would you need God to smear you with his presence to do what you can already do? That's kind of idolatrous. The one who leans on his own right arm, according to Jeremiah 17, is cursed. Yeah. So how do we know the difference between just doing what we want to and blaming it on God and doing what God has said to do and only doing that by his power? It, it, you're going to be crucified in every area of your life. Yeah. Hear from him. Be anointed in what you do with your hands. Now here's a big one. Sheep, sheep that stray. Don't go anywhere that he doesn't say to go. You might miss a phone call and survive it, even if it's from God. You might do something with your hands that you shouldn't do or refuse to do something that you should have do and survive it. But when you get up and walk out of the places he's called you to be, People don't survive that. Never. I want you to understand that. They don't. Never. He's been watching it his entire life. Yeah. Nobody ever thinks they're doing it because they were praying with wrong motives to start with. Oh, they were working with wrong uh, motives to start with. Okay? This is a chance for our church to get right. Yes. And it's happening. Yeah. There's been more repentance in this last week than in a long time. The strength of our hearing, the strength of the working of our hands, and the strength of our walk is, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? This battle included at the beginning of the book of Judges, kind of like a beginning before the beginning. It's like saying, listen, before I tell you how bad it gets, I want you to remember how it was, where we need to get back to. Okay, And I got a little excited about that. Go to Leviticus 14. Amen. Somebody said there or here? There. 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 Blind and deaf. Okay, uh, read verse 14 through 18. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it in the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the palm of his into the into the oil in his palm, and with his fingers sprinkle sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. The rest of the oil in his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for him before the Lord. Notice that there's an order to this. You anoint with blood, and then you anoint with oil. That must have been a little weird, huh? Yeah. To put blood on somebody's ear, put blood on their right thumb, blood on their big toe, and then come back behind with the anointing oil of God and put on top of that blood oil. 
You mean you didn't get it all the first time? Mm -hmm. Nope, you didn't. There were always more than one experience with the Lord. Can I tell you? You might need that experience many times in your life. You may only be able theologically to be saved once, but you're going to see in the book of Judges they're saved in every chapter. Since the time that the Lord redeemed you, there's only one way to get more anointing oil. That's to die to your purposes and live to His more. Amen. You can't say, Lord, I need you to anoint me for this and you didn't do the last thing that he did because you're alive to your purpose. What would he be anointing you for? Yeah. More love, more power, more of you in my life. What for? You didn't do anything with what he already gave you. Can you not, Samson, say that you're about to die of thirst from doing battle with the enemy? Surely we should be able to do that, huh? I want to tell you, you want more anointing, it comes through more sacrifice. Not sacrificing giving up certain kinds of food or drink. If that was the case, the Mormons could do it. Yeah. Through giving up your desires, your ambitions, your controls, more yielding to Jesus Christ, and then you will find more of Jesus Christ working in you. Okay. Secondly, who is he anointing in chapter 14? You mean there's two times in all the Bible that your ears, thumbs, and toes are anointed and one is a priest and the other is a leper? (laughs) (laughs) Who got anointed first? Priest. You mean once Jesus does this for you, you then go out and find the worst of the worst to do it for them? You know, when Jesus touched lepers, they weren't lepers anymore. And when priests anointed others with the same anointing they themselves had received, it doesn't say it might cure their skin disease. You keep reading. It says it will. Do you know that if you live rightly, if you fall in love with the Lord and you're hearing and working your hands and your feet truly begin to reflect Him, the people that you bump into, it will have that same effect on That is so... That's such a privilege. This is why Judah... Judah, the, The tribe of Judah can look at their little brother Simeon and say, hey, go fight. And know if Simeon's standing with him, they'll win. <clears throat> Simeon will learn to win. Judah invites Simeon into the battle. Praise invites hearing from God into the battle and then says, and when you have a battle, I'll show up and be there too. <laughs> See, this is the kind of relationships we're supposed to have. Amen. The stronger truck is supposed to invite one that's not as strong into the battle so that they learn what you know. That's called discipleship and attachment. And then, one day, Simeon also picks a fight and Judah shows up to help him. That's a transcendence. That's a uh, uh, making of peers. You want to know what that looks like? Just draw a map of the One Association churches. You'll figure it out. Amen. Okay? 
in Judges here, what we're seeing is that in the first seven verses, we find out the way that it's supposed to be. <laughs> they take hold of the false god of lightning. They subdue him who had subdued the nations. See, 70 represented the nations. The false god of lightning had the nations under his table. But the sons of God showed up. Just two of them, praise and hearing. That's all it took. By the way, how many spies wanted to go in? Two. Just took two. If you can agree on earth, two of you, pick a fight and go into it. If, if two of you, you'll chase thousands. Okay? We don't even need everybody to get right. I want everybody to get right. We just need to pair off in two teams of willing. <laughs> then you'll take the one who has held the nations captive, put them under his table, and you will drag him by his hair all the way back to Jerusalem without thumbs or toes. You'll show the whole world that the one who has been subduing the nations has now been subdued by Christ. <laughs> <clears throat> That's what we're called to do. Yes. In this book, unfortunately, this is where the highlight stops. This is what they're called to do. But at this place in the chapter, and we're going to pick up here next week, you find out that they always settle for something lesser. They go in and they take Kiriath's sepher, but they don't hold on to it. They go in and take... Jerusalem, but they don't hold on to it. They subdue a people, but don't drive them out completely. They subject them to forced labor, but don't get rid of them. When God made it very clear what they were supposed to do, and they had the power to do it, whether they knew it or not. So they end up in the time period of the judges when they should have entered something that looked like the millennial reign. Wow. But that's their story. Now we've come to a place in the evening where we're with your story. What are you called to do? How long have you been preparing to do it? <coughs> you know, at some point that gets indicting, doesn't it? 20 years I've been called to do this. Good, how's it going? Well, it's not. Will there be a turn in the chapter of your life? It says these seven verses were good and they're followed by 21 chapters that are awful. Or 21 chapters that are a cycle of deliverance and captivity and deliverance and captivity. Have you settled for some part of what God said you could have? Can I tell you? We know that you have. We know that. Some of you are not content with what God's actually called you to do. You would rather do something else. Yeah. And others are content with none of what God's called you to do. Wow. It's a painful thing to have made it this far in the faith with so few that I started with. Very painful. To have stood in a circle with men that should be standing in circles like this now. And they're psychologists, they're salesmen, they're professionals that were respectable in some other way. Because somewhere along the way, they settled for less than what God called them to do. You know what I don't want to happen to anybody in this room? That. I can't do anything about the time you've already spent. But I can risk 
hitting you in the face with the word hard enough to knock out your teeth to see if we can get you to wake up now and redeem the time that's left. And for sure, to get you not to continue to make the same mistake with every generation that floats through your house. We have a high honor and a privilege. After the death of Joshua, the people of God got to represent Joshua. And for seven verses, they did it like a boss. Now Jesus has ascended. He has died. He has resurrected. And he has poured out himself into you. He's not just anointed your ear, your hand, and your foot. He's anointed you from the inside to the outside. There remains no excuse. What we have to do is neatly define what we're called to do and accept nothing less than that. Period. Nothing less. No rest. No retreat. No surrender. You... You've got to go after it. They made four mistakes regularly. Examine these in your life. Have you refused to fight with the enemy? You just find it easier to not engage than to engage. Refusing to fight. <coughs> See, they win in the first seven verses because they fight. <laughs> Watch how the enemy changes tactics. <coughs> if you get through step one, step two is don't spare any portion of the enemy. You know, that looks like so many things. I did good for five days, so now I can reward myself with two. Let's talk in terms of years, and then you won't even think that way. How about you just promise the Lord five good years? Five good years where you do nothing but what he says. You know what you'll find out? In five months, you don't want to do anything else. Amen. You just got to stretch together enough months. You know, if you cannot even attend church, I mean, let's just be honest. How is it that I make every service and have for 20 years? How, how's, do I not get sick? What is it? How do I make it to the church services? And some of you cannot be counted on for two months in a row to make every service. Can't point to a time in your history with us that you could make it to two months of every service. How is that possible? Yeah, is there anybody in here that is literally that lame? I mean lame as in invalid, is there another nice word? Okay. You, you, you gotta come to grips with something. You're called to do the exact same things that the rest of us are. You just don't want it very bad. And all the devil really has to do is break an eyelash in one member of your family somewhere. And you don't show up. Don't even show up. And you don't know why people come into this church and after two years, they have so surpassed you that you think they're in some kind of different class. <coughs> it's time to get serious, church. Number one, you're going to have to fight with the enemy. Can I tell you the easiest fight you have in your entire life is perfect church attendance. It's not an option not to go. It's not. Not for me. Never has been. And for some of you, I've literally gone to your house and jerked you out of your beds. Not, not just one or two of you in here. Quite a few of you, actually. You know what that is? That is Judah grabbing Simeon and saying, we're going. 
But what if Judah ever needed Simeon? Could you be counted on? Number one, fight with the enemy. Number two, don't spare him at all. Don't spare him at all. That means because you've been a year without porn, we don't now look at YouTube thumbnails like we used to look at porn. Don't spare him anywhere. Have you left him some room somewhere? Can you not point to a single year of your life that you walked in holiness and whatever has already come to your mind? It's because you're sparing him a few months a year. You're just spreading it out into three-day intervals. You know, when wife or mom or pastor's out of town. Your life looks like judges. You've just hidden it. Number three. Begun to imitate the enemy. Having yielded to him so often now, we just imitate him. Beginning to think like him. You know, if you've questioned a pastor, I could live with that. Like, especially if it's me. I'm a questionable kind of guy. <laughs> but if you find yourself in the last few months going, I'm not sure if ten people, say Wade and Christy, Eric and Jennifer, Matt and Cassidy, I stand with nine other leaders. Should I really have to explain it to you? Not only do you imitate the enemy, eventually you obey the enemy. Meaning that when he says speak, you speak. When he says shut up, you shut up. He plays you like a puppet. Israel, who was called to subdue the whole world. The whole world. That is Israel's calling. To bring the gospel to the nations, for the nations to stream to Israel, ends up obeying <coughs> nations that are in bestiality. <coughs> Sin always takes you so much further than you wanted to go. What, what starts is just having more compassion than God. You're going to help him out a little bit. You're going to ignore your leaders. You're also such a compassionate person that you need a little more sleep so you didn't go to church. Such a compassionate person that you used an electronic babysitter for your kid for a decade because it's what they wanted. You know, such a compassionate person that you end up doing whatever the devil wants whenever he wants you to do it. Yeah all while wearing the title Christian. Well, let's turn it around because it becomes so easy. Attack him wherever you see him. How will you see him? The Word's going to show you. The Word's going to show you. Put the Word in front of you, the Word in front of you. Anything that contradicts the Word, destroy it. Start with you and work outward. Number two, spare nothing. Spare it nowhere. Levi was chosen specifically as a priesthood because he wouldn't spare his mother wouldn't spare his father, would not spare his fellow Israelite. He left no one alone. Don't spare anyone. Start with you and work outward. Number three, imitate nothing in the world. Don't love it. Don't, don't want it. Don't anything that is of the enemy, you don't want. Number four. When the enemy pushes you to do something, like gossip, 
wanting or lusting hmm. or apathy. Do the exact opposite of what he told you and rejoice in it. The exact opposite of it. Do it just because you want to show him you're not obeying him. So, well, I'm not sure the Lord told me. Don't make it so complicated. If the devil told you to do it, you can lean into it and go the opposite direction and be pretty pretty on, on, on track there. You know, when you have the thought that says, I can't witness to that guy, that's proof that you must. You must. So well, I'm not sure God told me to. Well, now it's, it's a matter of whether or not fear is going to tell you what to do. You better at least try. That's good. Yeah. God. Whether God was involved in it or not, I don't know. But I know at the moment that the enemy spoke to you, you cannot obey him. So do the opposite. Amen. Okay. What's happening in this church, so that you can feel it and see it all the way around, is in every Bible study, in everything that we do, the Lord is hammering a big, huge silver bell of redemption yeah. that says, I want you and I want all of you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, it is very possible to hear condemnation in the things that I'm saying. It is very, very possible that you could think, I just don't like you. It's certain that you think I'm talking about you, because I am. Every one of you. I'll name the families, if you like, from the top to the bottom, all of you. If I don't know your name, I'm still talking to you. <laughs> but what you should do is feel loved and privileged. Yeah. That is, if it were our last opportunity on earth, we use the excuse of the book of Judges to try to get hold of you. Because I don't know how many more opportunities we'll get. Don't know that with anybody. Yeah. And I want you to be fruitful. I want you to walk with your head held high. I want you to be proud. There are a lot of things this last year I was not proud of, but you know what I'm very proud of? I'm still standing right here doing what I was doing 10 years ago. Amen. 20 years ago. Yeah. 24 years ago. Right? And all of the attack of the enemy, we are still moving forward making disciples. That's what your life should look like. That's not a full-time ministry issue. That's an all-Christians issue. Yeah. yeah. You know the hardest disciple to make is your first. After that, you fall in love with it. Some of you, the reason that you've not made disciples is because you've not made disciples. If you stepped out and began to share your life with someone and do it in a serious way, it'll just happen. Okay? But your life has to be one worth being discipled after. And that really is the issue, isn't it? Get in your Bibles. On Monday night, next Monday night, we're going to pick up with verse 8. You're going to find out that every name has meaning. You want to have some fun? Look them up. Everyone does. You're going to find out that the majority of tribes lost ground. Only a few gained ground. Next Monday night, I hope we get all the way through too, but I don't know for sure. I guess it depends on how many computer crashes we have. Next Monday night, what we're going to do is go on a roller coaster ride for the next 21 sessions that takes us into the depth of human despair. Yeah. And at the moment that it looks like it just can't get any worse, it does. And then a Savior appears. Come on. That is a book of Saviors. That is a book that says, 
no matter what your situation is and how bad of a situation. Do you remember the headlines? I, I'm embarrassed to say them again. Dismemberment, sexual assaults, you all heard those things? There's light on the other side. The book of Judges lets you know that no matter what your situation is, if you pledge to kill your child, if it's that bad, and in this country it often is, all the time. This book is going to show us how to return to the Lord from those situations. We are going to love the book of Judges. Y'all stand to your feet.